It is so good to see you this morning. As Pete says, we're beginning a new series, and um, I, thought I'd, I thought I'd begin here, which is to say, I don't know about you, but I've always loved a good adventure movie or story, especially when it's one with an, with an intriguing title that draws you in and seems to promise some kind of great quest, that you're going to be going on a great quest with the characters uh, of the story. So a few, of, a few classics, a few favourites with great titles, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Journey to the Centre of the Earth, Around the World in 80 Days, and the lesser-known Sinbad and the Legend of the Seven Seas. Well, this morning we have, for our new sermon series, a title that for me sounds like it could be one of those classic quest-filled old-school adventure movies, Grace Church and the Seven Shaping Virtues. Who would pay to see such a movie? Except, of course, this isn't a movie title. This is the title of our autumn sermon series. So, so I wanted to start by asking the question, what is this all about? The Seven Shaping Virtues. And I thought I'd start us off, before we actually get into this morning's shaping virtue, which is, as Pete says going to be humility, I thought I'd start off by breaking down the sort of three main elements in this series title, beginning with that word virtues. What is a virtue? Might not be a word that we use that often anymore. A virtue is a particular moral character quality. Now, the glorious good news of Christianity, of course, is that we are not saved by our own efforts or by our own excellent moral character qualities. We have all of us fallen far short of the holiness and the moral excellence of God. And there is nothing we can do to make up for it or repay the debt we owe. The reason that's good news and not bad news is that it's quickly followed by the announcement that God has made a way to save sinners, to save the morally bankrupt. That's us. Not by good works, not by making us better people, but simply and solely through Christ dying in our place for our sins. And so, as I hope we know, salvation and forgiveness and welcome into God's family come not by our own efforts, but solely from start to finish by God's undeserved mercy and grace. But the good news of the gospel, of course, doesn't end there. That in itself would be amazing, but God's plan is more amazing still. He doesn't just forgive us and then forget about us. He forgives us and rescues us in order to begin a work of divine restoration in us. To transform us slowly but surely, admittedly with lots of bumps along the way, into the image of his son. The gospel, Romans 1.16 tells us, is the power of God for salvation. And that salvation encompasses everything from being forgiven through to being raised to a whole new way of life with Jesus. The Holy Spirit dwelling within us, slowly but powerfully transforming everything about the way that we think and speak and behave and live. And it's in that kind of big picture salvation context that the New Testament then goes on to speak about particular Christian virtues and particular moral character qualities. These things are not the means of our salvation, but they are slowly but surely the result and the fruits of our salvation. 
And that's why it's appropriate for us this morning as gospel-believing, gospel-loving Christians, saved entirely by grace, yet it's still appropriate for us to talk about growing in certain virtues. Okay, so that's virtues. That was the big one, I think. The second question is, why are we doing a series this term on seven of them? Why is there a seven? The answer is because these seven virtues that we're going to be looking at are ones that we've particularly come to value and cherish as a church and throughout our family of churches. We, we, we cherish these as clear fruits of the gospel at work in our church life and culture. And in recent times, uh, our family of churches has sought together to crystallise more clearly what these seven shaping virtues are, what they look like and why they're such natural fruits of the gospel in the life of a church. They're, they're certainly not the only seven that matter, but they are seven vitally important ones. So that's why they're, we're looking at seven. And finally, what about this word shaping? Uh, that's not about getting into shape for anyone that was either hoping or hoping that that wasn't going to be what was happening. Shaping, because as we already began to talk about on our recent church weekend, we're looking to grow. God calls us to grow in our church in gospel culture. And we started to look at how the gospel culture flows out of believing and treasuring gospel truth, gospel doctrine. The seven virtues that we're going to be looking at in this series are shaping in the sense that they're some of the primary traits we believe should shape our Christian relationships and our church culture. They're some of the key fruits of the gospel that should be at work in our lives, reshaping us more and more into the image of Christ. In a recent article on uh, the Sovereign Grace Church's blog, Mickey Connolly wrote this. He said, when the gospel of Jesus Christ is embraced, it produces a culture marked by the fruit of the gospel. All churches that have come to know the grace of God should prioritise and pursue those qualities that are in keeping with the message of grace. In Sovereign Grace, the explicit gospel focus that has marked our history has led us to value seven particular shaping virtues. Humility, joy, gratitude, encouragement, generosity, servanthood and godliness. The list is not intended to be exhaustive. None of us perfectly demonstrates these qualities and for this reason we press on toward a fuller expression of each shaping virtue in our lives. Ultimately, it is God who graciously creates and grows these qualities in his people. And he has promised to bring to completion the good work he began in us. Our hope and prayer is that these shaping virtues will be present and increase in our churches for generations to come. So this is, where, this is why Pete and I are really looking forward to having our main focus be this term as a church together, working through one by one the biblical teaching on each of these seven gospel virtues. And I trust that you are looking forward to it as well. Each week with each one, we, we, I think we're really endeavouring to do two things. First of all, we want to understand how the gospel naturally produces and encourages each one of these virtues. Well, why is it that each of these virtues grow naturally out of the gospel tree? Why are they like fruit on the gospel tree? So that's, we want to look at how. And second, we want to explore what each of these virtues looks like in practice when they're lived out by us in our church life together. And we're beginning this week with humility 
as we've said. And there is a reason we're beginning with humility, and that's because humility is really the essential foundation to all the rest. Humility is like the soil in which all of the other virtues grow. Imagine for a moment uh, trying to plant some kind of fruit or vegetables in your back garden when it's all concreted over and there's not even a patch of soil in sight. We've as much chance of growing food on a slab of concrete as growing things like joy and gratitude and encouragement and generosity in a pride-hardened heart. It'd be like sowing seeds on concrete. Jerry Bridges writes, Humility opens the way to all other godly character traits. Without humility, we cannot hope to cultivate the rest of the fruit. Now, why is that? That was a question I was pondering uh, a couple of days ago in particular. Uh, Why is it that without humility, we can't cultivate the rest of the fruit? Well, firstly, because we simply don't or won't want to grow in them. The proud man or the proud woman doesn't really believe he has much to grow in anyway. He thinks on the whole he's already pretty swell. And the traits that he does want to grow in are more likely things like power and position, wealth and popularity and fame, a far cry from these gospel fruits that we're going to be looking at. So a proud heart doesn't much care for these gospel fruits, doesn't want them. And the second reason I think all the other virtues will only grow in this soil of humility is that ultimately only God can produce these things in us. They're all fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5, that can only grow in our lives with a growth that is from God. We can't grow in these without God's help, without his empowering grace. But one thing God's word is very clear on is that God will not help the proud. James 4 verse 6 and 1 Peter 5 verse 5 Both say God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So only the humble can expect the provision of God's grace that we so desperately need in order to grow in all of these other gospel virtues. Humility is therefore foundational and essential to all of the rest. We must begin here. And we must begin here first and foremost with, and I've got just two headings this morning, beginning first and foremost, number one, with humility towards God. We must begin with humility and we must, in that, begin with humility towards God. All true humility begins vertically with the posture of our heart towards God. Humility flows, quite simply, from seeing ourselves as we really are before God. Humility, as I'm sure you know, is also the very opposite of pride because pride is utterly blind to who God is and who we are. C.J. Mahaney writes, Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him. Pride is madness. Pride is just folly. It's an abomination. It is a lie because it suggests that we are somehow independent of God, that we don't need God, that we don't need to trust God, that we don't need to obey him and submit to him. That is, that is the lie that pride whispers to us. Perhaps you've heard it said before that one very helpful way to think about our pride is that at its core, it's the act of contending for supremacy with God. That is really what pride is. It is 
contending for supremacy with God, battling it out with God, the God of all the universe, contending for supremacy with him. But I think we, of course, often in our hearts want to tend down, tone down the seriousness of it. Uh, we might say, oh, oh, we're just being a little bit selfish. We're just being a little bit egotistical, a little bit ambitious, overconfident in ourselves and our plans. But the truth is, the Bible tells us every proud thought is an attempt to overthrow God from his throne. Pride is high treason against God. It is the attempt to glorify ourselves rather than God. Pride was at the root of Satan's decision to rebel against God. Pride was at the root of mankind's first decision to turn away from God. With Adam and Eve deciding that they didn't need God, they could be their own God. And pride is really at the root of all of our sin as well. All of our sin every day at its root is pride. And if that wasn't bad enough, and I hope you're getting the picture, I'm trying to paint a, the black biblical picture of pride. If that wasn't bad enough, pride is also self-destructive to the one who walks in it. Proverbs 16 verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride poisons us from the inside, turning our attention away from God and onto ourselves where the human gaze was never intended to rest. Jonathan Edwards once called pride the worst viper that is in the heart and the greatest disturber of the soul's peace. And worst of all, pride, as we've already seen in James 4 and 1 Peter 5, it draws forth active opposition from God. God hates pride. He opposes the proud. He cannot bear with human arrogance because it is wicked and it is a denial of the truth. Humility, in contrast, is, is simply an embracing of the truth. Humility is not about unjustly putting ourselves down. It's not about adopting some sort of um, insincere, groveling, outward demeanour, uh, like some kind of exaggerated character from a Dickens novel. And the, the one who came to my mind was uh, the character Uriah Heep in David Copperfield. Anyone, if anyone's ever read that or seen that? Uh, the most, I think, oily and dishonest and slimy character in all of fiction who's always bowing and scraping and making reference to, reference to his own humbleness. Humility is not about putting on an act or a false show at all. It's not. It's not putting on an act. It, humility begins like a trip to the opticians with actually putting on glasses that suddenly bring everything into sharp focus. Glasses that help us to see things as they really are. Seeing ourselves as we really are in the light of who God is. And there is no more perfect 2020 vision way to see both those things, to see God and ourselves as they really are, than through the divinely prescribed lenses of the gospel. You go into the opticians, they give you, try out lenses that will help you see clearly. Turn to God. He gives us the, the lenses of the gospel to help us see things as they really are. Help us see ourselves and help us see him. And so take... Take Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, for example, uh, such a well-known and much-loved passage. The gospel begins by showing us the seriousness of our rebellion and sin, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, verse 1. And that is accurate and 
That is humbling. It then tells us that God is altogether holy and just and that we were therefore children of wrath. Chapter 2, verse 3. And that is sobering and accurate and humbling. But it then goes on to tell us that because God is rich in mercy, chapter 2, verse 4, and because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And that is amazing and accurate and humbling. And then in case we've still not quite grasped it all yet, it goes on to remind us that it is 2 verse 8, by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not our own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And that is mind-blowing and accurate and humbling. All the way from end to end, the gospel reminds us of the truth of who we are and who God is. And it humbles us. And at the, at the same time, it makes our hearts sing because we are so loved. True humility then is not a dehumanizing act. It is a humanizing one. To humble ourselves before God is freedom. Because we weren't created to be great in our own eyes to spend our days looking at and admiring ourselves. We were created to see and know and look upon the majesty and the holiness of God and to enjoy his rich and gracious love for us. Pride will make us run from God and rebel against God, but humility draws us to him. And even more amazingly this morning, humility draws him to us. Isaiah 66 verse 2 says this, God says, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Humility draws, amazingly, the attention of God. It draws the blessing of God. James 4 verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 4 verse 6, God gives grace to the humble. C.J. Mahaney again writes, contrary to popular and false belief, it's not those who help themselves whom God helps. It's those who humble themselves. And so the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 5 verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Pride carries with it a terrible price, but humility is full of promise. And true humility always begins vertically like this with the posture of our hearts towards God. It starts there, but it doesn't end there. If it's real, it will inevitably also then spill out horizontally in humility towards other people. And that brings us to the second of our two headings this morning, Begins with humility towards God, but it spills out horizontally to humility towards others. Genuine humility before God will prompt us and lead us to increasingly think and act with humility towards other people. And I think nowhere uh, more wonderfully describes this than Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4. Here is the essence of what this looks like. This humility towards others. Philippians 2 verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility towards others, as Paul captures it here, involves both the way we think about other people and the way we actually treat them. First of all, it involves our thinking. In our thinking, in our hearts, he says we are to count others as more significant than ourselves. We're to put others first in our hopes and our desires and our ambitions rather than acting from selfish ambition, caring more about our own goals in life, rather than acting from empty conceit, which, which really just means having a highly exaggerated view of ourselves and seeking glory and acclaim for ourselves. The culture of the world that we live in today very positively talks about thinking highly of ourselves and promoting ourselves and pursuing our own life goals and successes. Look after number one is, uh, and put your own needs first is so often the world's mantra and motto. But when the light of God's word shines upon all of that talk about self, it, we quickly find it's just age-old self-interest Selfish ambition and conceit being dressed up by the world to look like it's something different, something positive and good, but it's not. Philippians 2 is enough to show us that those things are in direct opposition to the attitude of heart and the gospel culture that ought to exist in the church, where in humility we are to count others in our thinking as more significant than ourselves. So it affects our thinking, the way we think, and feel about other people. Then secondly, that flows out into the way we actually treat people. Paul says we're not just to look to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. We're to put humility into action. We're to put legs on it. And in the life of a church, in a gospel culture, that could mean all manner of things. And uh, we could, in home group this week, begin to sort of pool ideas. What might this look like? What does this mean in practice? Because I, I think it, I'm sure it involves a hundred, a thousand different things, but it would surely include things like each of us, when we come together, coming first and foremost, not to be served, but to serve. It looks like using the gifts that God has given us, not for self-promotion, but to build others up looks like being open about sharing our own sins and struggles, not trying to project a false image that suggests we've got it all together, that we're better than we are. This humility in practice looks like joining together to praise God, even in times of trouble. looks like exercising dependence on God as we give ourselves to prayer. looks like sitting willingly and eagerly under the teaching of God's word. It looks like submitting together to what God's word says. It looks like striving to pursue God's will for us as a church rather than our own will. It might look like surrendering where necessary our own preferences for how church should work, surrendering them in order to preserve unity and in honour prefer others. It might look like sharing what we have with those in need, whether it's our time or our money or our attention, our comfort, our prayers and much, much more. And once we start looking for it, we find this call to pursue relational humility, horizontal humility, all over the New Testament. 
Ephesians 4 verses 1 and 2. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Colossians 3 verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience. 1 Peter 5 verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And I do find that that imagery of clothing ourselves with humility in, in that last one so especially helpful. Because in all honesty this morning, while I see the rightness and the beauty and the wisdom of humility, I am the proudest man I know. I know my heart and I... I see no one prouder than me. Selfish thoughts and selfish desires are my constant companion. I think far more often about my own needs and comforts and desires than I do about other people's. And and thinking about this, if, if I was in any doubt about the hold that pride and selfishness still has on me, I, I need only to think about how much I love my family and want the best for them and yet nowhere... Am I more tempted at times to be more obsessed with me and not concerned with them as when I'm at home with them? That is my biggest battleground for pride and selfishness. This side of heaven, my pride and I believe your pride seems inescapable and unshakable. It's like the the many-headed hydra in the Greek myths. No matter how much I go on the attack against my pride and and try and chop off one of its ugly heads, two more rear up in its place. And nowhere more so, so so ironically this, isn't it? Nowhere more so than when I start to feel proud about the fact that I'm trying to kill my pride. Proud that I'm doing something that looks humble. What a mess we are and what a resilient enemy our pride is. The reality is, of course, because all of our sin is rooted in pride, we will never be rid of pride completely until we are sinless. And that will not happen till we go to be with the Lord or Jesus returns and makes us perfect. But that doesn't mean that we can't and we shouldn't put up a fight here and now against this many-headed hydra that still dwells within us. We can at least begin to wrap our hands around its neck and begin to suffocate it. And here's where I find this imagery of 1 Peter 5, verse 5, so helpful. This, this clothing ourselves, it reminds us that the way to battle our pride is not solely to train all of our attention directly on it and just try to destroy our pride head on. I will not be proud. I will not be proud. I will not be proud. No, the even more effective way to fight pride is to focus more still on clothing ourselves with humility, smothering and suffocating our pride by enveloping ourselves, clothing ourselves with humility. Which, which brings me back once again to one of my most pressing quests in life. Uh, I'm sure I've mentioned it before. It is that of trying to kill off the weeds in my garden. The battle you'll be not pleased to know is ongoing and their resilience is disheartening. But the opportunity for sermon illustrations is proving to be at least a silver lining. 
Because I learned this week that one of the most effective ways to truly kill off the weeds in our garden is not to pluck them out one by one, nor even to spray them, each one on the head with some chemicals, but it is instead to smother them with some kind of maybe a black tarpaulin over them, depriving them of sunlight and suffocating them. Clothing the flower beds with that black tarp for a few months is the most effective way to cull the weeds. And clothing ourselves repeatedly for a lifetime with humility is the best way to weaken and suffocate our pride. It is the best way. It is the biblically prescribed way. But that, of course, requires deliberate, constant action. Just like we have to be intentional about clothing ourselves physically in the morning. We have to be intentional about putting our actual clothes on. Getting dressed in the morning doesn't just happen. Not unless, this did come to my mind, uh, not unless you're Wallace from Wallace and Gromit, who obviously invented a machine that would dress him in the morning. But that didn't end well for him, did it? Because he ended up in the wrong trousers. So don't follow it, Wallace. Follow 1 Peter 5.5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Pride, unfortunately for now, comes to us very naturally and easily. It's kind of like our naked state. But humility, like clothing ourselves, it takes daily effort and action. The very good news, though, is that God has not left us on our own to do this. He has given us his spirit and he has given us the gospel. We started to see earlier how the gospel, first of all, helps us to humble ourselves before God by showing us our sinfulness in the light of God's holiness and grace. But the gospel's also powerful in the, in the hands of the Spirit to help us grow in humility towards other people, towards each other on that horizontal level as well. And that's perhaps nowhere clearer than in what Paul goes on to write in Philippians chapter 2. His call to, that we've just seen to, in humility, count others more significant than ourselves, is rooted in what comes next in the chapter, in the gospel of Christ's own humility. That the Son of God came down from heaven to earth and humbled himself even to death on a cross. Jesus was the only one who didn't need to clothe himself in humility. He was and is God in human flesh, worthy of all honour and glory and praise. Every knee should have bowed down to him. And yet he bowed his knee to wash men's feet. And he bowed his head as he hung bleeding and alone, nailed in our place to a cross. He didn't need to humble himself, but still he did to the lowest of all depths. F.F. F. Bruce writes, to die by crucifixion was to plumb the lowest depths of disgrace. It was a punishment reserved for those who were deemed most unfit to live, a punishment for those who were subhuman. Christ stooped as low as anyone ever could, lower than anyone else ever could because of who he was and for who he died. He died for a great multitude of proud, arrogant, conceited, selfish, godless sinners. He stooped to the lowest, 
lowest depths in order to raise sinners like us from the grave to the highest heights in order to raise us up to receive forgiveness and new life with him. Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our journey of growth in humility can only begin here by faith in Christ's death. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were all of us guilty of having risen up in proud rebellion against our maker, all of us contending for supremacy against him. In our pride, we were guilty of treason against our maker. And so before we could ever begin to grow in humility, we needed to be ransomed from the penalty for our pride, ransomed from death and eternal separation. What is incredible is that the way that God chose to rescue us from our pride and all of its consequences was not simply by re-establishing the proper order of things, reminding us, you're the creature, I'm the creator, And therefore you should humble yourselves before me. He would have been perfectly right to do so. But instead, he, the rightful ruler and creator, clothed himself in humility to serve and sacrifice himself for us. It it was the pride of man that ruined us and it is the humility of God that saves us. And that should melt our hearts and humble us. It should send tears of joy running down our faces as we remember that Christ humbled himself to save us. And then now, here is what the logic of the gospel so powerfully says to us. See it in Mark 10, you see it in Philippians 2, see it in so many other places. Here's the logic of the gospel. If even the Son of Man humbled himself and laid down his life in the service of others, how much more should we be ready to humble ourselves before God and other people, especially when humility so befits us? It befits us as creatures and sinners and saints with a humble saviour. There is... Everything surprising in the best possible way about a divine yet humble king and saviour, that is surprising. There should be nothing surprising about humble Christians pursuing a humble gospel culture in response to all that the saviour has done for us. In the hands of the Spirit, hands of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, the gospel provides us with the model and the motive and the power to help us grow in humility towards God and other people. And once again, let me just remind us, the call to humble ourselves towards others is not to adopt a false view of ourselves, but a true one. And it's a view of ourselves that through the gospel will lead us again and again, not to despair, but to heights new heights of joy and freedom and love as we revel in the mighty and gracious love of God. If you're feeling at all challenged, convicted or encouraged or or maybe even confused this morning about humility, well, it's a great reason to come to group this week. On top of that, there are a few things I would recommend more highly than that you um, go away and consider reading or rereading 
Uh, C.J. Mahaney's little book on humility. Uh, I've read this book four or five times in the last, I don't know, 15 years perhaps since it was published. And, and it's always so freshly helpful when I open it to read it again. Maybe you, you read it many years ago. I encourage you to crack it open again. In it, CJ devotes the whole second half of the book to exploring an extended list of practical ways by which we can endeavour to weaken our pride and cultivate humility in our daily lives. Uh, He includes things like, and I'll I'll rattle through these, but if you want to see them or write them down, open up the book, have a look. He includes things like beginning your day, acknowledging your need for God and expressing gratitude to God, practising the spiritual disciplines, Casting your cares upon God, accepting the gift of sleep, studying the attributes of God, studying the doctrines of grace, studying the doctrine of sin, encouraging others, identifying evidences of grace in others and and several more just in this little book. But the best one of all is at the head of the list. Reflect on the cross of Christ. And so I want want to end this morning by reading to you what he says about this, because this is in many ways what we have been primarily doing together this morning. He says, he writes, For me, the most consistently helpful item on the list is this. Reflect on the wonder of the cross of Christ. I believe this will be the most important habit and practice for you as well to truly be serious and deliberate in mortifying pride and cultivating humility, you must each day survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Fill your affections with the cross of Christ, wrote John Owen, that there may be no room for sin. And that includes no room for pride. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote the following about the surest way to pursue humility. There is only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust. And that is to look at the Son of God and especially contemplate the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Nothing else can do it. When I see that I am a sinner, that nothing but the Son of God on the cross can save me, I'm humbled to the dust. Nothing but the cross can give us this spirit of humility. And then CJ continues, nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. Father, he says, I want to stand as close to the cross as I possibly can because it is harder for me to be arrogant when I'm there. Let's pray. Father, this morning we want to stand as close to the cross and as close to our saviour as we possibly can because it is harder for us to be arrogant when we're there. Oh Lord, we thank you this morning that as you saw us in the wickedness of our prides, Lord, you didn't condemn us and throw us away. No, you sent your son to come and clothe himself in the greatest humility. 
coming to serve us even to the point of dying on a cross for us. Oh Lord, we pray that you would continue to melt our hearts as we look upon the humility of our Saviour. Lord, we pray that you would bring us more and more into the freedom that comes with humbling ourselves before you, seeing ourselves and you as things really are, and entering more into the joy of your forgiveness, of your grace, of your love, and of the blessing that you shower upon the humble who trust in Jesus. Lord, please help us to grow in this virtue, not to hope in it that it in any way makes us acceptable to you, but Lord, on the basis of the acceptance that is already ours in Christ, because you have poured out your love on us without measure, now we pray, help us to grow more into his image, to clothe ourselves with humility towards you and one another as we go forward as your people. We pray this in the name of our most humble saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.